You're listening to the Changing Lives Podcast, where we talk with health professionals, industry experts, and everyday heroes, changing lives on the front lines through emergency healthcare. I'm your host, Ben Cleaver. Well, welcome to the Changing Lives Podcast, everybody. Today, we are talking about something, I don't know if you can get any more crucial, critical uh, of a topic to talk about um, for frontline healthcare workers. Mental illness is not only something that's on the rise and something that we're dealing with in the public, in the community, uh, more and more so on a daily basis, but also something that healthcare workers are at greater risk of, uh, even in the last 12 months. Today, I'm Really excited to be talking to uh, my guest, Angela Driscoll. Angela, thanks so much for coming on the show. My Absolutely my pleasure. I think this is such an important um, topic for, mm. for healthcare workers, for everybody. Yeah. Um, so I'm really pleased at the attention that's being paid to it. So thanks for having me. Yeah. No, it's it's a privilege to have you. Um, some of our team here have worked alongside you in uh, the nightlife precinct uh, up at Surface Paradise, which I think is the party capital of Australia. It looks like it on a Saturday night. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and you're in the thick of it. Yeah. You have coordinated uh, the chill out zone uh, for now for 20 plus years. Yeah, and that's quite a unique uh, initiative, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's, it's the first service of its kind anywhere in the world. Mm. And we just have the most amazing staff team in there. So for people who aren't familiar with it, mm. we, we offer, you know, first aid care, intoxication care for people who've had too much to drink or maybe use drugs that didn't have the effect they thought they would have. Uh, and just like, I suppose, anything that can go wrong for the patrons in the nightlife precinct. Mm. Uh, so we do see a lot of mental health issues, a lot of upset people, um, certainly a lot of first aid. Uh, and, you know, we feel really fortunate to be part of that. Mm. Um, and it's a huge been a huge learning curve because, as I said, we're the first of our kind. So there's really nowhere that you can learn about how do you make sure that mm. people feel comfortable to be getting assistance from you. Mm. Um, and I, you know, particularly with the staff that we've got, mm. we've we have the most amazing reception there from all the patrons, the venues, the police, and it's a really, really unique service. Incredible. And okay, so we're going to get into the the what is mental health? How does it present? Um, you know, what are some of those contributing factors and how we can, as healthcare workers, how we can better serve the community recognising this and this being on the on our radar to, to better help the community. But we're also going to get into how do we help ourselves because, you know, as I said before, even in the last 12 months with the pandemic, the world seems to be changing and um accelerating at a, at a rate that is just unprecedented. And it means that us on the front lines of dealing with issues and, and health issues and emergencies in the community, that mental health is something that we absolutely got to be tuned into, not only for them, but for ourselves. Yeah. Um, so and we're going to get into that today with you. Yeah. And I think in, in terms of um, language, it's often, it's changing now, but often when we think about mental health, we think about other people and mental health problems and disorders. Mm. We're really, we've really got to get into using the language that mental health is something that we all have yeah. in the same way that we've got physical health. Um, you know, the conversations around that, there's lots of things that we can do that support that. Um, just the same as in physical health, we 
can have one event that totally shatters our mental health in the same way that we can have an accident that shatters our physical mm. health. Um, so, and it really is in exactly the same way as physical health. It's an entire spectrum, you know, from healthy to really, really unhealthy. We are all on that spectrum somewhere and we'll all move up and down that spectrum across our lifetime. Right. And I think particularly with... Um, not just the pandemic, but that's a huge thing. You know, the world is really changing really, really rapidly. Mm. Um, and change is often what fuels mental health challenges. And whether that's a natural change, like, you know, growing up and leaving school, um, getting married, having a child, losing our parents, changing jobs, mm. um, you know, they're all changes and they all will pose challenges to our mental health. Um, and particularly, you've really hit the nail on the head when it comes to emergency services, particularly, um, you know, their interface uh, is so, so important. Mm. And I think, you know, most paramedics would say a large part of their workload is in fact dealing with mental health crises. And mm. even when it isn't dealing with a crisis, it's also about how do we approach and work with this patient so that we're able to give them the help that they need. Mm. Um, you know, because obviously paramedics have a wonderful reputation for trustworthiness and being good with people um, and but they have a job to do as well so mm. the easier that they can make that job by maybe understand understanding where someone's coming from or what's the best way to approach them is really important and I know that we are going to talk as well about you know the mental health yep. of first responders because obviously particularly in an emergency situation of course that is going to affect people's mental health and the way that they view the world. Mm. And, you know, we want people to be as healthy as they possibly can, particularly in those sort of vital roles. So I'm really glad that, um, you know, we're going to talk about that. Such a good conversation. I I'm like literally I couldn't be more excited to talk about this because I think, you know, it, it has there has been a stigma to mental health. Mm. Um, but we need to blow that stigma out of the water. And it's almost like, you know, I get this feeling like I, I – I've taught first aid um, for, for about 10 years and um, right in the early, you know, when I was learning first aid, it was kind of all about the physical trauma, you know, the, the St. John's first aid course where you, you learn how to do a tourniquet and you learn how to, you know. And Stop it's that sort bleeding. Of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. For, and then it sort of progressed into more of the sort of chronic disease, um, you know, heart attacks and, and diabetes and, and supporting people for, you know, emergencies of that nature. Now I notice there there is a bit of a new wave of mental health first aid. Mm. You know, um, so and, there's been and that progression. accredited courses. Mm. Um, you know, in that, or even just you know, simple courses because it is so vitally important. Mm. And I think we've been really fortunate in the chill out zone because obviously, if you're dealing with people who are intoxicated, you've already got that barrier that they might have to treatment. You yeah. know, they're not necessarily sitting there going, "Oh, my leg's bleeding. Can you help me?" Mm. You know, they might be combative. They might be upset. There's mm. got to be ways around that to be able to then give them the physical assistance that they need. Mm. All right. So before we get stuck into that and the content, can you give us a, just a brief background of your career and how you got into this field? Oh, for sure. It's a, a twisty story. Um, I, I was originally a teacher um, and I worked in uh, special education specifically with uh, conduct disordered uh, young people at a school in Sydney that was only for young people who weren't allowed to go to other schools, mm. usually for behavioural reasons. And I got really fascinated with their family dynamic, those of them that had family, so I ended up as a family support worker and counsellor and a youth worker. Mm. Um, and I, I said I loved youth work. And then I actually started in the chill-out zone as one of the 
support workers and I was just so fascinated by this, you know, very new to me um, strategy and the importance of it and and I've been there ever since and it's always changing. It's a very uh, political field in some ways. Our work doesn't necessarily change but, you know, the political approach to nightlife precincts, okay. to young people and their drinking, that um, does change quite mm. frequently, the legislation will change. Uh, but I think it, it's still the young people um, that are the, the the real pool of that service for me. Um, it's such a critical time. You know, most of our clients are between 18 and 21, but we do get, you know, very young and very older people as well. But the majority are in that, you know, really important transition between leaving school and deciding who they are and who they're going to be. Mm. Uh, and it, obviously it's quite the Australian tradition to be going out dancing and drinking. Uh, so there ha there have been changes over the time, but really at its core, it's about young people looking for their identity and where they belong. Uh, and I actually feel really privileged to be part of those moments. Um, you know, a lot of it is very, very funny, as you can imagine, you know, drunk people can be quite funny. Um, but a lot of it is, you know, really, really heart to heart talks with people in ways that they probably don't talk to anybody else in their lives because their guards down, um, they've been drinking, they're not coping with something. Um, so I think that, you know, their humour, their positivity, their optimism, all those things mm -hmm. to me are just such wonderful uh, mm -hmm. things to be a part of. I think it keeps us all young, all the staff in there, um, because you, I wouldn't say every generation's the same, but growing up is the same. Um, and that's what we're sort of privileged to witness and be a little part of. And I think that's fantastic. Mm. 20 years though, 20 years in that coordination role at Chillout Zone, like how do you keep going without getting burnt out and what is it really that inspires you about helping young people? Some would say that they're out there drinking, they deserve what they get. Um, you know, what is it that keeps you yeah, going? Yeah, and I, I think that's definitely an attitude that people have mm. until their own children are 18, 19, 20, and then suddenly they understand. And we certainly find that, you know, with schoolies each year, um, when we have decision makers whose children are going to schoolies, decisions yeah. are made differently yeah. uh, because it's very easy to say, oh, you know, that whole nightclub crowd. But when you love and care about one person in that nightclub crowd, um, it personalises it for mm. you. Um, and I wouldn't, I mean, in the beginning, I think I didn't know what I was doing. Um, it, you know, we knew what the service was, we'd, but I don't think I ever realised at the time what an incredible service it was. It was just you know, I didn't know it was the first one in the world for about the first 10 years. And um, to, to be able to contribute to public discussion around young people and those transition points around drugs, around the availability of alcohol, you know, it's really easy to demonise things like that. Um, but it's much more important to understand maybe what is the imperative for young people. Why mm. would they choose to do that? Why are some people you know, affected for the rest of their lives by their decisions and other people, you know, grow up and grow out of it and, and they're all fine. Mm. Uh, and I think that's what keeps it really fascinating because it's, it's nothing that we have answers to yet. It's about, you know, being able to keep safe 
each cohort that comes through uh, and they are, you know, that even the difference in young people, the way they dress, the way they choose to uh, party, but the, the friendships and the growing up have been the same all the way through, which I think is really lovely. And, I mean, I've got staff that have been with us 13, 14 years. Wow. And it's not easy to work weekends. They don't finish till, you know, 4, 4.30 in the morning. Yeah. Um, and that can really um, affect your lifestyle enormously. Um, but I, th- and I think they share a similar motivation. It's... It can be really challenging, but it can be really fun. We have a fantastic team mm. um, and that makes, um, I think for all of us, that makes the hugest difference because you've always got mm. someone that you can talk to if something doesn't sit okay with you. Yeah. There's got to be a, a reward uh, that is intrinsic to that role like you're talking about for you and your staff to stick at it that long. Mm. What you get back seems to be more than you'd say get, maybe get back in a – in an, in an office job over 13, 20, uh, 20 to 20 years. Oh, definitely. Right? And, and you know, the the challenge of it and being able to be an advocate for young people mm. um, over and over and over, whether that's, you know, on site with the police or the ambulance trying to get, get them into an ambulance um, or whether it's sort of, you know, when in political meetings when we talk about the way that nightlife is managed and regulated. Uh, there's Obviously there's a proportion of young people People that don't participate in the nightlife, yeah. but there's a, quite a significant proportion that participate three nights a week, mm. um, you know, and they're, they're the ones that we do get to know um, over a period of a few years and then they grow on and they grow up and grow on to do something else. Mm. Yep. So we want to dive into now mental illness uh, and mental health, as we said, there's good and the bad mental health, health has a stigma of and a negative stigma, mm. right? But mental health is actually something positive as well that given the focus in a positive way, we want to talk about some of the good practices that we can uh, implement to keep ourselves um, as best we can in a a positive mental health um, state. Um, But, you know, when we talk about mental illness, what are we talking about? You know, maybe somebody would have that stigma of somebody in a psychotic episode, but it's not that, is it? No, I mean, there are, there's, it's difficult to ascertain exactly, but there are a couple of ways that in Australia we look at the prevalence of mental health. Mm. Um, There was another very big physical and mental health survey meant to start in 2020, but maybe 2020 being what it was, perhaps it hasn't started yet. Uh, But we do have some longitudinal studies that estimate when we're talking about, you know, persistent, chronic, severe mental illness, which is what people often picture when they think about um, being mentally unwell is about two to three percent of the Australian population over their lifetime. Um, So that's a significant percentage. um, But if we're looking at people who will have mental health problems, it's about 45 percent across the lifetime. Um, About Yeah. And and about five percent across, you know, any 12 month period. So it's it's a really significant um, section of the population. And which means that, you know, it is really important that we don't think of people with mental health problems as being other or different to us, uh, because if we do end up in that situation ourselves, it's going to be a lot harder to cope Mm. with. So in Australia, the most common 
um, mental health issues are anxiety disorders. Um, so about I think it's about 15% uh, of Australians across their lifetime um, will develop anxiety-related disorders. Um, the next is affective disorders, mood disorders like depression, bipolar, uh, and then substance use disorders, mm. pati- obviously particularly alcohol and drugs. And quite often they will co-occur in people, you know, yeah. people with depression will self-medicate with alcohol uh, and not realise that that's actually making both problems worse for them. And, uh, you know, the big elephant in the room, which is being talked about a lot more now, you know, we have uh, every day in Australia six Australians who take their own lives mm. uh, and that is uh, mm. absolutely, you know, just a crushing figure to think about. And we have, I think, 65,000 that make an attempt um, wow. and... Uh, and that's certainly uh, males are much more likely to die by suicide than females for a couple of reasons. You know, the, the probably the one that gets around the most is that they will choose more violent and final means when they do take that step, uh, whereas women are more likely, you know, to choose softer me. I don't mean, you know, as softer as in not as likely. So, you know, they might take an overdose of pills mm. rather than jump off a building or hang themselves. Uh, and I think also what what tends to co-occur with that is that males, it's it's still socially not as acceptable for males to talk about their feelings as it is for females to seek out a support network and say, this is how I'm actually feeling. So we have um, probably across most of the West, Western world, but certainly in Australia, this stoicism that, you know, men aren't allowed to have feelings. Mm. And that's changing quite rapidly uh, you know we have men's movement movements and specific mental health support groups for men and I think that's really really uh, an important factor is that you know women seem to more naturally have support networks or be able to talk about how they're feeling mm. um, and you know that's something that I really hope to see over the next few years that we have more males um, that that feel comfortable doing that as well and certainly culturally you know there's lots of different things lots of different issues that that will cause distress for people mm. um, and but that, that that they are coming out into a more open conversation right across the country yeah. is really really important um, particularly when we're talking about things like sexual assault or mm toxic masculinity where we, we, you know, there is deep-seated trauma there. Um, And once we can start having those conversations that acknowledge that, yeah, these are extraordinarily traumatic events for people, that's when we can actually begin to address not just the effects on people, but how how does our culture support these sorts of things? Mm. This stoicism uh, with males or, you know, the the self-blame that might come with sexual assault for people. And, uh, you know, the suicide is the number one way to die for Australians aged between 15 and 44, which is terrifying. And quite often there's there's different schools of thought uh, around suicidality, but the one common stream that uh, people uh, that, uh, you know, people who contemplate suicide um, or who recover from a suicide attempt will say is I didn't think anybody would miss me. I didn't think I mattered. And having been involved in, in the aftermath of quite a few, I've, I've, never ever been involved in one where people didn't care deeply and were incredibly grieving at at the loss of a person because they'd never told them. Uh, And I think that as we start talking more about these are ways that you can feel and these are normal ways to feel um, and you you need to reach out, particularly before it gets to a crisis, um, but definitely when it gets to a crisis. So 
when we were talking before about mental health first aid and strategies around that, there's a there's certainly a lot of uh, different learning opportunities to find out how do we talk to someone that when we're concerned about them. And for years it was, you know, don't don't mention suicide or, you know, they'll kill themselves. Yeah. And now the thinking is really, really clear. Ask straight out, are you thinking of harming yourself? Um, and say, I'm worried about you. I don't want that to happen. What can we do together to get you help? Yeah. Um, and that that's not, you know, when someone's at that crisis point, you know, if you notice that they're behaving differently, they're withdrawing, they don't seem themselves, um, ask, you know, if you care about them. Uh, obviously, if they say, give me space, give them some space, but make sure that it's not at the expense of them knowing how much you care about them. Um, and, and, you know, that we, we do have a lot of strategies that are trying to address suicidality in Australia, and, and I think that's really important. And we have a lot more that are trying to make sure that people don't get to mm. that stage. Um, so we know that mental health is a challenge for almost half Australians across their lifetime, um, and that certainly doesn't exclude anybody. You know, any of us could suffer a traumatic event that really impacts uh, on mm. our mental health. We're talking more now um, in our society about as, as we grow as children, what, what effects do traumatic events in childhood have on us? And that can be something as commonplace as our parents divorcing, mm. um, you know, which some people would breeze through and not find traumatic. Other people will blame themselves and internalise that and there's something wrong with me. Uh, so as they grow into adulthood, they still have that core belief there's something wrong with me yeah. or that wouldn't have happened. Uh, so we're, I think, much more careful socially now to try and involve children, um, you know, when relationships finish to try and look at ways that parents can mediate around that co-parenting role uh, because we recognise now how, you know, the, the disastrous outcomes can be from something that's quite commonplace. Mm. Uh, you know, any of us could be involved in a car accident, um, you know, that, that is traumatic or, yeah. you know, the sudden death of someone that we care about and that's traumatic. Mm. And when we certainly when we talk about um, health professionals and that's part of their role is to enter traumatic experiences. Uh, so I think uh, it becomes doubly important to make sure that, you know, how, how do we take care of ourselves so that when we do come up against a trauma, um, we are as resilient as we can possibly be mm. to that trauma. Yep. All right, so let's talk about the prevalence of mental health issues. Are, are rates really growing and what's contributing to that in your experience? Yeah, that's a really good question and it's difficult to answer because we've, we've got a number of survey instruments. Some of them are self-report, so how do people feel? Um, and that's certainly growing and we've got growth in people that are being diagnosed with mental health issues. Mm. So definitely part of it is we're talking about it more uh, and we recognise that. Um, but that is only a part of it. I think most mental health issues uh, in Australia will come when people are in late adolescent to early adulthood. So sort of, you know, 15 to 24 is the mo most likely onset for most disorders. Oh, okay. And what we know um, about that period is it's, a, it's an enormous transition period. So even... Uh, you know, even a 30-year-old thinking back to when they were 15, the world is a different place. Our access to news, our access to each other. You know, I'm old enough that I remember when you had one family phone in the lounge room and if anybody wanted to talk to you, that's how they had to talk to you. Yep. And now young people can be, you know, absolutely bombarded uh, from all sorts of different directions in terms of, of messaging, which 
there's two issues that come with that. One is that they don't have the same amount of time that, say, um, you know, 20 years ago we did just to be ourselves and to, you know, to not be in relationship with other people or, you know, communicating with other people. Um, and also the way that people communicate, particularly online, uh, you know, I think everybody no- realises that many people communicate online in ways that they never would yeah. in person. Absolutely. Uh, you know, malicious and nasty and say things that they would never say in front of their mum, but we we feel that, you know, that that anonymity online allows us to do that. Mm. Uh, You know, some of our most tragic cases in Australia have been specifically linked to online bullying and the capacity of um, young people to reach vulnerable people 24 hours a day. And... And, you know, many of those young people who are affected will say, well, you know, it'd be even worse if I couldn't respond or I didn't see what was written about me. And as much as parents might, you know, try to manage that, it's also really, really difficult to understand if you didn't grow up like that. Mm. Uh, And when we're talking about adults and young people, our access to news you know, 20 years ago, one nightly news bulletin, um, you know, and that you could watch that. And now, you know, the sources of news that we have and trying to decide whether they're valid sources, are yep. they representing the truth? Is there other things that are being represented there? Um, it's very, very confusing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's enormously uh, challenging for young people to navigate uh, all those different worlds because they can't really necessarily talk to their parents about them because their parents don't move in the same worlds and can't necessarily talk to each other about them because there is this real, I suppose, an idealised view of how their lives should be. And, And now there are wonderful conversations starting around that, you know, in terms of, you know, do we follow Instagram influencers and um, are they, you know, a lot of them are coming out and saying this is not what my life looks like, you know, this is what my life looks like. And I think that's that's really, really important. You know, even the, the changing attitudes that we've had to the LGBTQIA plus community mm-hmm. in the last 10 years has been phenomenal, uh, you know, and there'll come a time in 10 years where we, we can't even imagine that young that people in that community don't have the same rights as mm-hmm. other people. And, and that's really really, really important when it comes to mental health because the suicide rate amongst young people in that community is four times higher than people that identify as straight, um, you know, and so to be able to have those conversations and to open up socially, um, there are difficulties that come with it because obviously, we've, you know, we've got quite conservative views um, linked with very liberal views. But if we keep those conversations going, that's what is going to um, to help us uh, and, and keep them going in a helpful way, I think, mm. is, is really important. So... In terms of prevalence, I think it's it's kind of like a perfect storm. We're talking more about it. People are recognising um, that, it, okay, maybe things aren't fine with me seeking help or identifying that, yes, I have um, yeah. an issue. We know that around only around 50% of people who probably have a diagnosable mental illness are seeking treatment for that. Wow. Um, uh, so, And that's specifically based on Australian data. The Black Dog Institute's got some wonderful data around that. And we, we also know that of those who do seek treatment, about 75% will have a positive experience and get significantly better from that treatment. Um, and, you know, we, we don't have any shame. You know, if I cut my leg, I've got no shame in going to the hospital and saying, oh, I really need 
need some help here. Um, it, I need your skills to help me. But we still seem to have a bit of a stigma around that when it comes to mental health. And that's what conversations like this will actually change eventually. Yeah. Uh, you know, that it, it is really, really important uh, to talk about these sorts of issues in, in our own circles, publicly, uh, you know, how do we address so there isn't that stigma that comes with them any more than there'd be a stigma that, you know, I had asthma, mm. which I don't. Um, but if, you know, but it's, um, yeah, that you know, there's no stigma attached to that. There's no stigma attached to catching the flu. Yeah. Um, but there's an enormous stigma, you know, if, if you are depressed or if you are anxious. And mm. I think there's far, far less than there was. I mean, 50 years ago, People, anybody indicating psychotic behaviour would probably be locked up for the rest of their lives. Now we know that there are ways to manage those symptoms. There are very, very few cases, uh, and, and probably going back to that 2 or 3% we talked about before, where the, but a percentage of them probably will not be able to participate fully in society, but a significant percentage of them will with the right assistance. Okay. And whether that's um, medication or ongoing therapy, a, a combination of those two things, um, taking care of yourself as well is enormous. Um, you know, there is, n there is no barrier to participation in society except in very, very rare cases. And that's, mm. that's part of the stigma. People think, I oh, will always have that label. Um, and it's in, the medical community certainly come around. You know, that label is to allow us to assist you. It's not just for the sake of having a label. Um, it just helps us better understand what we're dealing with. So, yeah, I think that prevalence is, is a vexed question. It's hard to uh, answer. And whether or not, you know, just I suppose the evolution of our society and of our culture, yeah. whether that is just a, a breeding ground, you know, the rapid technological changes, mm. when we think back, you know, 100 years ago, the world was an unbelievably – 10 years ago, the world was an unbelievably different place. And the, the pace of that is so, so rapid that we probably – you know, it's, it's challenging to then say how do we support people um, in, in these transitions, um, whatever their transition might be, to not feel so alone. Because realistically, a lot of us feel – if we may be incredibly electronically connected, but that doesn't mean that we don't feel alone. And there's been recent studies probably brought on around the pandemic that you know loneliness is at epidemic levels and we I think there was real concern initially when the locked, really harsh lockdown started with the pandemic that you know the suicide rate would spike and it's been shown that that's not the case help seeking oh, wow. has spiked okay. incredibly you know people contacting lifeline and beyond blue and kids helpline yep. to say you know I'm, I'm feeling really isolated or i need help and one of the factors in that i think and, the, and I'm, I'm sure that there will be research that looks at that is you know you if we are all in this together which in the pandemic we definitely were then i am not isolated i have connections right. to other people you right. know we're all suffering together it's not just me feeling like this uh, and i think that certainly in the early stages of the pandemic where, you know, every, everything was locked down, we really did start thinking about what do I value? Yeah. It's not being able to duck into coals and buy toilet paper, if you could. Um, it's, a, you know, the people that I can't see, they're important yeah. to me. Yeah. The, the value that I place in my work and how that makes me feel, that's important to me. Uh, and so it, it really did set the scene for a while there on, on being able to open up conversations that, 
we've never really had um, before. And I, I sincerely hope that a lot of that stays with us um, as Absolutely. we come into sort of a post-pandemic world. What is important? What did we miss? Mm. You know, our horror at not being able to visit our elderly citizens in nursing homes. Yeah. Hopefully that will then have an outcome of much mm. more frequent visits because it's important. Mm. Yeah, it's the typical... Don't know what you've got till it's taken yeah. away. And I think, you know, we all paid so much attention um, to that in mm-hmm. those few months for Queensland anyway with the really hard lockdown. I'm sure Victorians really, really had the opportunity mm. um, to think about it and what do I miss and what gives me joy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we can only be better because of that is, is my really sincere hope. Yeah. And even in terms of, you know, this is, this is not just – in my country or in my state, this is across the world mm. that people are grappling with. And I I think that, you know, there'll be a lot more understanding that we are a global community. Yeah. Um, it's, it's unfortunate that it was a really rapid spreading disease that yeah. had to do that for yeah. us, but it just goes to show how connected we all are. Yeah. All right. So as a frontline healthcare worker, a first responder, you've got uh, – plenty of experience in that. What are some of the signs and the things I'm looking out for to recognise whether somebody is having a mental health episode and and then how do we how do we respond to that? Oh, I think the it, you know firstly some will be very very obvious, you know, that they are detached from reality that they're seeing things that aren't there or hearing things that aren't there, that's in the most extreme case. So someone who is having a psychotic episode um, will be really detached from reality. Um, the And, you know, the, the newest thinking on that, or it's not that new, but is don't argue with delusions because right. you can say that's not real, that's there are not dragons across the road. Um, but that doesn't matter. If they're real to that person, then it's a much better approach to say, why don't we go over here then away from the dragon? Um, you're not going to, you know, reinforce their delusions necessarily because they don't need reinforcing to yeah. them that is really, really real. But if you need them to come with you or to accept treatment, um, then that sort of approach where you accept them exactly as they are in that moment, even mm-hmm. if you logically know that where they are is not a healthy place, um, and you, you get that really quickly reinforced in places like the chill-out zone because you are dealing with people who are alcohol and drug affected Mm. so their reality is already distorted Mm -hmm. Uh, you know they may be with four of the most fantastic supportive friends that you've ever seen but they absolutely hate them at this point in time and know that you never do anything for me so that's the reality that you have to deal with if that's the person that you want to assist you uh, to assist in some way um, then you you kind of have to log into their reality Mm. um, to make that connection with them, um, certainly if we're talking about um, suicidal. You know, I just – that sounded like perfect parenting um, advice as well. <laughs> the monster's in the cupboard. I'm just going, yeah, yeah, I should just, you know, go along with it. Yeah, yeah. because they believe that. Yeah. Um, or you could go along, yes, there were, but I got rid of them yes. because I'm your dad. Right. And right. I can I beat can anything. That. Yeah. <laughs> Monster spray. Um, so thank you. <laughs> there's a take-home piece of advice for everyone. Um, and that's really important. You know, obviously um, people who are suicidal mm. are, at, are significantly at risk. And if we're, you know, talking to someone, probably for first responders we've, we've got there because they have said something to somebody or made preparatory behaviours to harm themselves. Um, but if it's just, you know, you, they, you're not quite sure, you can listen for clues, you know, do they have, what are you doing tomorrow? 
and if they don't have any plans for tomorrow, that's probably not a good indicator. Mm. Um, if they say things like, I don't want to be here, I don't want to wake up, um, you know, that's not active suicidality, but it is passive suicidality. I don't want to be here. Um, and at, as we were saying before, really important to ask concrete questions. Have you thought about harming yourself? Is this something that you would do? How can I help you mm. uh, so that you are safe? Mm. The most important thing to me is that you are safe. Um, who can I call for you? Um, have you, if you have an access, if you, obviously if you're working as a health responder, please come with me. We can go to the hospital where we're able to assist you um, in, in getting some assistance because I'm sure that you are really valuable to the people who care about you. Mm. And, and, you know, be prepared for people to argue with you. No, yeah. I'm not. No, I'm not. Everybody hates me. Um, I'm sure that's not true. Who do you live with? Um, when did you last talk to them? And you can tease out clues to, that that prove to them that there are people that care about them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, suicidality is the biggest risk, you know, that, that if we don't pay attention to those sorts of clues and never be afraid in any situation, whether it's a personal one, a professional one, um, especially if it's yours, you know, listen to those clues yeah. uh, and, and make sure that that person does seek support. If we're talking about, when we've talked a bit about psychosis, if we're talking about people who are maybe um, depressed or anxious, we get a lot of people in the chill-out zone who are having anxiety attacks. Many of them have had those before. Um, and the, the most wonderful thing that you can do is, is validate that, you know, what do you use? Um, to you know, what have you been taught that helps you get over these periods? Right. And for some people, it'll be I, you know, I, I tap, I practice mindfulness, I um, regulate my breathing, I meditate. Um, great. Well, let's do that. Can I do that with you? Um, if you, if it's people that um, you know have never had an anxiety attack before, the physical symptoms can be frightening. Mm. You know, and it's important to remember that people who are having um, an anxiety attack or a panic attack truly believe they are going to die. You know, their heart is thumping, their fingers are tingling, they can't breathe properly, uh, they don't know what it is. The mm. mind is an extraordinarily powerful thing. Uh, so I think it's about, you know, learning about what what different disorders are there and how might they present to people. So you can have people who are presenting as suicidal who have no intention of harming themselves, but the feelings that they have make them say things like that and perhaps act in ways um, that are really concerning. So I know that a lot of, um, for some young people, you know, their, their families or their support people, oh, you know, this happens every week. It doesn't make it any less valid. It doesn't mean that it's just a cry right. for attention. Um, but certainly if something, whether it's a panic attack or suicidal threats, if something is occurring, even even just once or twice, that's a really good time to say to someone, I'm, I'm concerned. Did you know that 45% of Australians will have a mental health issue in their lifetime? Do you think this is what could be happening here? Um, why don't we go and see a GP? Right, yep. um, a lot of Australians now, I think, know about mental health plans that are accessible through GPs. Yeah. Um, for young people, Headspace uh, arranges all of that, you know, in one place. Um, but whether, even if people don't think that they have a mental health problem, uh, those mental health plans can be wonderful um, to be able to talk to somebody that's unbiased, that isn't involved, um, that can, you know, give you some of the feedback that does help you um, to cope. Because with a lot of mental health issues, there there's a lead up. 
you know, that whether it's a traumatic event or something that we just don't recover from. Uh, the death of someone close to us is a, is a really good example mm. of that. You know, there's a, a normal and natural grieving period. Um, if that becomes prolonged, if it's something that interferes with our daily lives after a period of time, then that's a good time to say, okay, I'm not coping. Mm. What can I do that would be helpful? Um, or, you know, to observe that in someone else, what can they do that is helpful. And I know that um, for paramedics particularly, it's an enormous part of their workload. Um, and the most important thing for, for I guess, the, the right outcome and that we, our most important principle in the chill-out zone is not to judge people to be non-judgmental, um, whether that's around the behaviour they're exhibiting, the things that they're saying, even if they're calling me names, um, the, or it's it, it's around the drugs that they might have taken or the amount that they've drunk. Um, you know, that isn't really our business. Our, their safety is our business. Yeah. And the only way to ensure their safety is, is for them to feel that that is your main motivator, that because whatever decisions we might have made that get us into a situation – thinking about them is probably not going to help us get out of it. Um, so the most important thing is where are you at right now? Where do we need to be? How can I keep you safe? Great. Now, how do you keep yourself safe? Uh, that is also extraordinarily important. Um, and that that's for everybody, uh, you know, to be able to say, well, what are the, what are the factors that in, impact on my well-being and how can I how can I make sure that I do the most that I can? So we talked before about, you know, prevalence across a lifetime and a huge thing is is being ready um, for whether it's a traumatic event, if, if you're working in healthcare or, um, you know, working with people who are in difficult situations, you, you are certainly more vulnerable to taking that on. Uh, and one of the, which fantastically we're talking about now, much more around um, PTSD and other trauma disorders that do happen to first responders. Mm. Um, and I, I know there's a lot more emphasis now on the prevention of those. And we talked before about, you know, the the correlation between physical health and mental health. It really is exactly the same. We know that there are things that we can do that improve our mental health. Some of us do them really well and some of us not so much. But, you know, we can eat well, we can sleep well, we drink water, we exercise. It's exactly the same for mental health. Mm -hmm. There's been remarkable progress in looking at the actual linkages between our body systems and our mental health. Uh, um, yeah. You know, that, that enormous amounts of serotonin are produced in our gut, not our brain. Mm. Um, you know, so the physical aspects of health uh, do also contribute um, to, to positive mental health. You know, doing things that we love, acknowledging when we're in moments that give us joy. Parenting mm. is a, a, well, it's a double-edged sword because there's lots of moments that give us joy and then there's other moments where we think, oh, I'm going to rip my hair out, I can't mm. deal with this. Um, you know, but to really try and savour um, those be the beautiful moments of it. And and that can be, even if you're not a parent, that can be anything. You know, what am I good at? I'm going to try doing that at least once a day so that I do get that feeling I'm good at this. Mm. And, you know, when we talk about exercise, it's certainly not for everyone that we're going to go out and, and not for me, um, you know, go out and, and work at doing a triathlon. It can be as simple as walking around the block. For me, it's swimming. Um, you know, to be in the water is incredibly restorative for me. Mm. I'm from a big family. Contact with my family is really important right. to me. It's not always positive, but it's really important. Uh, so being able to and, – and because – 
a lot of people, a lot more people are thinking about this than ever have. They're able to identify, you know, what what gives structure to our lives, what gives us joy, um, how can we have more of that mm. in our lives, what's important to me. Um, and, and I think that, you know, we're able to do a well-being plan for ourselves uh, and if we're able to do that and to follow it, we're in a much stronger position when things do go wrong because things invariably will go wrong in life. Mm. Um, you know, eventually most of us will lose our parents. Um, most, Many of us will go through other traumatic experiences that we didn't see coming. The more care that we've taken beforehand for our mental health, um, the better we are going to be able yeah. um, to cope with those things. And it can be, you know, I think the last 12 months has been stressful for everybody. So much change um, that, you know, we've all probably been really looking at how do we, um, how do we assist our mental health? And you think of, I know that it happened across the world in the end, but I think it started in Victoria, the bin night. You know, where people got dressed up to yeah. take their wheelie bin out because yeah. it was the only time they left the house. Yeah. Uh, you know, things like that where that can be, you know, everybody, lots of people were doing it, lots of people were watching it. It was hilarious, you mm. know, and something as simple as that um, can be really good mm. uh, for mental health. So it doesn't have to be huge things, uh, but it, they've probably got to be regular things. Yep. Some people find great comfort in religion, in their belief mm. system. Mm. Other people don't have a religion, but they're still going to have a belief system. And, you know, to think about what that might be. And it can be as simple as saying, you know, my family, give me strength. That's a belief system. Mm. Um, so make sure that you contact your family, mm. um, you know, pride in our children, uh, pride in ourselves when we manage challenging moments mm. with our children. That's really important. Nurturing relationships that nurture us right back. Um, all of the, which sound really simple, but are often the first things that we forget when things get difficult. Yeah. Like, oh, well, I'm not going to eat breakfast today. Yeah. I can't be bothered showering today because I'm not going anywhere anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that they're simple things, but they're things that are worth paying attention to. Mm. And that's why I think there's, you know, there's so much popularity around things like mindfulness now. Because, you know, when people first talked about that, it was like, oh, that's kind of a spiritual practice. It is, it can be a spiritual practice, but it's grounded in really good science mm. um, around, you know, the plasticity of our brains and that we can actually create for ourselves um, the lives that we want, despite what other, you know, what external circumstances yeah. might be. We don't always have the capacity to change external things, yeah. um, but we can always change, uh, you know, our internal yeah. workings and our belief systems, and that's really important. And particularly, you know, we know that there was a, a proportion of the population naturally in the helping professions that continued to work, um, you know, through the lockdowns and when everybody else got to work from home, um, th that's when it becomes vitally important that people are aware of, of the value that they hold, even when, and I know in the healthcare professions, it's really common to not feel very valued, mm. whether that's the way that your patients talk to you or the way that the system works. Um, so the importance then of, of making sure that, um, that you value yourself, but mm. also the colleagues that that you work with? How do you let them know that you value them? Um, because that is one surefire way that then you're going to feel value as well. Yeah. Um, because hopefully yeah. they'll say the same sort of things back. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like to me that there's this real need to be very, very intentional about how we look after ourselves mentally mm, um, and our that's, mental health. And that's that, a perfect phrase to mm. use, I think, um, because where it's... It, 
it's not something that is intentional for most people, uh, and it. But they are generally things that we're doing anyway. Um, you know, when we are well, we do nurture ourselves. We do seek out the things that we enjoy, and we do say to ourselves, "Are oh, you doing a good job there?" Mm. Um, but all of those things are the first things to go when we don't feel so good about ourselves. Mm. So that intentionality does become really important. Mm. Uh, I was I was telling someone the other day. Uh, that I, my daughter left home to move to Sydney for a fantastic opportunity uh, when she was 20, I think, uh, and she and I were very, very close. For the first two months after she left, I was it was such a huge transition for me. I actually had like a self-care star chart on my wall. Um, to to reinforce to me the importance of that. Um, and it's not like I was, you know, really young, but it really, really worked for me Great. because it was like let's identify the things that you enjoy that are important um, for you. And it really helped me. Like that, that for me was um, not traumatic, but it was such an enormous change mm. that suddenly, you, which I think any parent whose children have left home would relate to, you know, it's this incredibly, it's the centre of your life for 20 years or however, mm along, I believe 30 is the current age to leave home, um, that how do you feel that when that is gone? Because it's not something that most of us contemplate. When you're in the middle of it, it's like, this is going to go on forever. Yeah. And it doesn't. Um, and and I think, you know, recognising those transitions and being proud of um, the things that we do do, particularly as parents, you know, those are our most fundamental and probably most sensitive relationships um, that we're ever going to have. But whether that's, you know, I did, I finished school, even if you didn't do well, mm. you finished. Um, and it, for the students at, at APC, I started this course. I did something for myself, um, something that's important to me and I've gone out and done it because Mm -hmm. not everyone will. So really celebrating those little wins and I think that's a perfect word for it, intentionally. How do we intentionally build wellness into our lives? Mm. Excellent. And you talked about this wellbeing plan. Um, is there some sort of structure that somebody can, is there something out there that we can, can follow um, to, to do a wellbeing plan? Or if not, what, is it, what does it look like? I, mean, how would I you... think that there probably are, and we'll have a look for them yeah. because we can make sure that they're posted. But mm. uh, thinking, what, you know, what are the components to wellbeing? Well, it's physical health, it's mental health. Um, physical health, most of us know what are the components uh, to well-being. It's whether we do them or not, that's a different story. So, and again, um, we're saying that, that those components of physical health are also shown to, to show um, oh, uh, yeah, 100%. mental health as well, the same thing. Um, so we're talking about exercise, regular exercise. Mm. You don't have to slog it out for two hours a day No, walk gym, around the block. Walk around the block. Uh, which also could be one of your things that make you make you feel mm. mentally good as well. Um, that's what we're saying, right? Yeah. Um, and it's it's good nutrition, water, rest, sleep. I know for my own um, personal mental health, that sleep is absolutely critical. Getting a good night's sleep consistently mm. is like one of the <laughs> the best things I can do to feel like I'm winning. Mm. And that's one of the reasons, you know, that that very early parenting is so difficult yeah. because the one thing that you can't get yeah. is a decent night's sleep. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the, the effect that that has on mental health is enormous. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, yeah, looking at ways, I guess, to get back to that idea of intentionality, if you're walking around the block, 
what are you thinking about when you walk around the block? Um, you know, and rather than thinking of all the things that went wrong in a day, set yourself up to actually think about the things that went right. Yeah. Um, the added dimension, I suppose, of, of mental health is uh, when it, you know, all the things that support our physical health also support our mental health. Um, but our thoughts will very much shape mental health. Um, and that's when things like mindfulness will come into it, just taking time to really pay attention to minute things in our day that we wouldn't really. And to try and feel gratitude is a huge one. What are we grateful for? And and often the things that we're grateful for are such a huge part of our lives that we forget that we're grateful yeah. for them. Um, mm. You know, whether that's children or our health, our friends, our families, um, you know, to, to actually concentrate on what we feel gratitude for. And, you know, there have been some really remarkable studies done with people who are under care for mental health reasons and things like gratitude journaling and mindfulness have been far more effective than, you know, than, than pharmaceuticals by themselves. Um, and these are things, you know, we don't need anyone else there to journal. We don't need anybody to tell us, you know, what are the three things that you're grateful for. Um, reaching out and, and they can be actually telling those who are involved, you know, um, and really simple. It doesn't have to be big things, you know. I'm grateful when you smile at me when I come into work every morning because it makes the day get a bit better. Um, to share that gratitude is is another really important part of a wellbeing plan, to actually communicate with people why we're grateful, to why they're important, um, to us. And one of the, the harder things probably is is meaning. You know, how do we take meaning from life? So for a lot of people that is uh, built into religious beliefs, um, what is, you know, what the meaning of life is. But we know that a, a, an increasing portion of Australians don't subscribe to a particular mm. religion. So thinking about what gives your life meaning? Is it the relationships? Is it meaningful work? Um, is it work that you do in the community or volunteering that you do? You know, what, what's a cause that you're passionate about? Um, how can you help in that cause? And that could be just reading a lot so that you you understand it really well, or it could be activism in the community. Mm. Um, but those sorts of, and many of us are too busy um, to do those other yeah. things. Yeah, so what meaning can we find in the things that we have to do? Um, and and quite often that is relationships. And, you know, we, we, we know that, um, you know, one of the most difficult periods in life, or well, not difficult, but certainly challenging, is that transition from childhood to adulthood. And I imagine there's lots of, of, of the students of APC that are in that um, age yeah. bracket yeah. Um, because that's about identity formation. And that's difficult because we're moving from being the child of our parents um, into very much being our own person. So we're making a lot of decisions, sometimes without a lot of information, um, being really influenced by our peers. And uh, probably also, you know, that process is starting much earlier. We were talking before about the sort of bombardment of of news and of um, social communication. So for a lot of um, Australian young people, that's starting much earlier, you know, at 12 or 13. And mm. um, and they are hard decisions for people to make. So that's important, you know, where what meaning do I have in life? Yeah. Um, getting out in nature. And again, it's not about, you know, doing a 10-kilometre hike. It can be sitting with your back up against a tree listening to the birds, mm. um, you know, but being out in the fresh air and in nature has been shown to really improve um, our mood. And sometimes, just like with the star chart, it's about forcing ourselves 
mm. about being reminded, um, making that habit, you know, after two weeks or a month, you don't need the chart anymore because you go, that mm. makes me feel really good. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to do that just because it makes me feel good. Yeah. 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 So I think, yeah, that intentionality, just even if it's identifying three things, three ways, there are three things that we can do every day that are going to make us feel good. And it can be, you know, getting a manicure. Getting a pedicure, um, getting your hair done. You know, it can be, you know, external things or, you know, every week I'm going to make a time to have coffee with a different friend or just with that one friend because they make me laugh so hard. Yeah. Um, I'm going to – I haven't seen them for months because I don't have time. I'm going to make time um, because what the intention that comes with that is this is something that's good for me. Yeah, great, great. Love that. And I think the act of actually just writing – those things down like you said having a star chart or something mm. on the fridge it doesn't have to be that but but actually writing it down helps to you to visualize these things mm. and keeps you a bit more accountable mm. to making these practices regular i know for myself in just um, personally overcoming some health challenges that come with their own set of mental health challenges when you're not feeling well, um, meditation, mindfulness has been an absolute game changer for me. And it's so simple, very hard to start with, just being there with your own thoughts. But the great thing is, is that you're not, you're not alone in that, you know, and it only takes like five minutes mm. um, to start to build a, a meditation practice. It's not super woo-woo or weird. It's just you know, sitting and, 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 and resting and acknowledging, accepting what's going on, even accepting the thoughts that are going on in your head, but not identifying with them. And that, that's actually a fantastic point because a lot of people give up these kind of self-care things because they're like, I'm no good at that. Yeah. Or oh, I, try, I tried at... to meditate and I just heard this right. negative voice the whole time. Yep. Um, pay attention to that. You know, if you've said, I want to do these 10 things every day, mm. pay attention to the ones that you're not doing. And, mm -hmm. and no judgment, why aren't you doing them? Mm. Um, same as if, you know, you have an internal voice that's sort of saying, oh, this is never going to get better, it's always been like this, I'm so hopeless. Well, where does that voice come from? Mm. Um, do, don't judge yourself more harshly than you would judge other people. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So definitely uh, challenge everyone listening to, if they haven't already, put into practice some of these, put down, you know, five of those things or, or three things you're going to do. No, don't necessarily have to be very long things. You don't need to cut out, you know, an hour or two hours or whatever a day to do this stuff. They're simple little no. practices, but do them regularly, and uh, you'll you'll notice a, a big difference. I challenge you. Yeah, and one of the wonderful things now is if you sort of go, well, I wouldn't know how to meditate. Google beginner meditation. It's great apps. Um, great apps out there. Yeah. Free. Yep. And um, we'll put I'll, I'll make sure that we have available. There's a um, it's just a fact sheet about apps and things that are available yeah, online yeah, for we'll people um, and you know a lot of them are free um, it, a lot of them some of them are just keeping track of what we say that we'll do but you know that are giving us support to do that so we'll make sure that that's available um, as well because I think particularly as we've said for people that are entering um, health prof the health profession especially first responders um, the the more that they can do that takes care of their yeah. own well-being the much better they will be at coping with the challenges to well-being and mental health um, that do come with being a first responder and they're not always patients mm. you know the system can be frustrating um, colleagues in many workplaces are, are frustrating as well so how can we best get ourselves ready for those challenges so that I can actually have a long career 
Um, and and most certainly most emergency services are absolutely acknowledging now that you know they do have um, you know they've got peer support workers they've yeah. got external um, support companies and. Uh, you know, we ha- unfortunately have a bit of a history where that that was stigmatised, and people thought, oh, you know, if I access that, people think I'm weak, so I can't do it. And that stigma has almost completely disappeared because the reality is that it's it takes an incredibly strong person to say, I need help. Yeah, you know that, and and that's what will keep that person strong because they're yeah. not struggling. They've actually will get structure um, around that, and I, I think that's just a wonderful thing. Absolutely. Okay, so we've talked about good practices to keep ourselves in a good mental health state, but how do we know if we're really in that danger zone now and and then where do I go to get help? The last part of that's really easy because there is so much help available. The first part, you know, how do I recognise, can be quite tricky because if we're talking about um, – you know, things that have formed in our childhood or our responses to some of the traumas that we talked about before that are traumatic for children, Mm. uh, then it can become such a part of our personality that we actually don't realise that we have those responses. Uh, So for, for, I guess, for different types of disorders, there would be very different, um, different warning signs. But anything that interrupts our capacity to live Mm. the life that we want to um, because of the way that we think or the way that we behave around others is probably a bit of an indicator that we need to look at our behaviour. And if we we think, well, I don't know why, then maybe we do need to go and see a professional where we can actually say we don't know them, they're not going to judge us, where we're able to say, you know, wow, every, every time I fall in love, I end up just completely paranoid that they're going to cheat on me and I ruin mm. the whole thing. Mm. Um, you know, that's an indicator that we're probably not thinking um, in a way that is helpful to us and supportive of the outcomes that we want. When it comes to things like uh, depression, you know, that that is something that can happen quite gradually or really, really rapidly. Um, so things like not not being motivated, not wanting to see people that we care about, uh, not wanting to talk to people that we care about because we don't want them to know what's going on, not wanting to go out anymore when we used to really enjoy going out. Um, Anything that we enjoy, suddenly deciding or even gradually deciding that uh, we don't want to do that anymore. Um, And that when we talk about those sort of um, transition periods and we talk about, you know, the finishing of school and stuff, a lot of things that come with school, so a lot of young people, you know, will play instruments at school or do dancing at school. Um, And for a lot of them, that finishes when they finish school, um, which can then mean that, that, you know, they're missing something that they actually really enjoyed. So, but whatever age range, some things will be very obvious. We talked a bit before about grief. So the loss, you know, of a parent or a contemporary um, is traumatic. It's traumatic, particularly mm. if it's sudden. Um, and there, there is going to be a natural grief response to that for a period of time. If we don't feel that that's resolving, you know, or, you know, I cannot find the motivation or the joy that I used to have in life, that's an indicator um, that it's a good time to go and see a medical professional. We're, it, we were talking about mental health plans before. You know, those are um, 
developed with us by a GP. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're able to go in and, and see our GP and actually say, this is how I'm feeling. And then all GPs in Australia have the capacity to say, okay, well, let's do a mental health plan. There's a, a, a bit of a, um, a, a rumour that goes around that, okay, well, then everyone thinks I've got a mental health problem. Um, anything between you and a medical professional is confidential. You know, it's not going to interrupt your career or have people talking about you because that's simply not the way that it works. So any major adjustment, um, it's always worthwhile to go and talk to someone unbiased. Many of us are lucky to have someone like that in our lives already, but a lot of people aren't. Mm. Um, So a counsellor can actually, uh, or a psychologist can actually uh, be that person for us at particularly Mm. difficult times in our lives. When it comes to um, suicidality, which I think is, you, you know, the hugest challenge that we face, any indicator, you know, any t- anybody at any time that thinks I don't want to wake up tomorrow, um, you know, that I- that's an indicator that, you know, there there is something not right. Um, and whether that is a mental health problem or it's just a loss of motivation or joy in your own life, yeah. um, get help as soon as you can. Yeah. Reach out for, you know, reach out to people that care about you because we were saying before, you know, one of the, the really common things across people um, who contemplate suicide is that nobody will care. Um, and that is so far from the truth, yeah. but their thinking has distorted the way they believe other people look mm. at them. Mm. I mean, I would say if you've got a good relationship with your mum, start with your mum. You're going to find someone that cares incredibly mm. um, and would be devastated if anything happened to you. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that's what we need to hear. If we've if we've allowed ourselves to get to a point that we don't believe when we hear those things, um, then that's an indicator that we probably need more professional assistance. Yeah, okay. If we start doing, um, well, hopefully we'll start doing all those wonderful supportive things anyway, mm. um, but at the, if you feel like you're losing motivation or, you know, you're not getting joy in things, seek out the things that do give you joy um, and practice them as often as you can. Um, and if that doesn't help, then get yourself to a medical professional and just say, you know, I think I, I need assistance. And it may just be that you're at a point in your life where things are going to be difficult anyway. Mm. Um, how can you be supported through that? Or how can you be given the language so that you can let people who care about you know that you're struggling, um, you know, know you are not adding to their burden. Um, when it comes to substance use disorders, that can be really, really tricky because the nature of addiction means that we don't recognise that we have a problem. Mm. Everybody else around us does and is really concerned, mm. but we, we think that we've got the answer to the problem. You know, if I go off and use this drug, then it's not really a problem anymore because I feel great. Mm. Um, so a lot of the time that will come from people around you saying, I'm concerned um, about this. And I think, you know, that's the really tricky part with addiction. We often don't, I've got it under control. We don't listen to them. Um, so, but certainly, you know, it, anyone expressing concern, that's a warning sign if you care about them. Um, having said that, the other side of the coin is sometimes our relationships can be toxic enough that they're not helpful at all. You know, someone who continually puts us down or harks back to something that we did that that doesn't make us feel good about ourselves, they're not good. They're not healthy relationships to be in. And whether they're, you know, friends or partners or lovers, that's probably not going to help us or not going to help our mental health in the long term. When it comes to the helping professions, Mostly what we're talking about there is burnout or vicarious trauma. 
So vicarious trauma is more likely to be for counsellors or psychologists who listen to traumatic events or or the, their clients reliving those traumatic events. Um, most professional people will have ways to make sure that they are not getting um, to the point where they're not going to be able to work anymore, not going to be able to function. When it comes to, it, you know, first responders, paramedics in particular, um, it's more likely to, to be something like a, a, a trauma disorder from exposure to trauma. Mm. And some people can go for years and years and be exposed to trauma after yeah. trauma and it doesn't bother them. But then it's one case, one thing that they attend that touches a nerve in them. Um, it's really important to recognise when we have um, flipped over into something that's not healthy. So yeah. for... Um, for a lot of it, anything involving children is naturally really traumatic for the people that respond, particularly if they have their own children, because that's not really, you know, that's not the order of things. Children aren't meant to die or meant to be harmed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, being able to keep track of that. Uh, if your coping mechanism is to drink a lot every night, you, there's a problem there. Right. Um, because that's not a healthy coping mechanism. Um, and we'll always need first responders. We'll always need people that are exposed um, to that trauma where we have an expectation that they'll be able to cope. Um, so it's really important that people who are going, who are choosing those careers mm. also are choosing how do I prioritise self-care, um, not, not just because I'm worthy of self-care, but because I want to have a long career yep. um, and that they're able to recognise when something does affect them. And sometimes that it can just be cumulative. Nothing bothers them, nothing bothers them until everything bothers them. Mm. Um, and to be able to recognise that. Most helping professions are, are fortunate in that, you know, there is real camaraderie mm. um, among colleagues and they're able to say, you know, no, I'm, I'm seeing... Um, I'm seeing things that make me concerned about you. Yeah. When it comes to uh, students, um, you know, just choosing to study is a really fantastic thing to do for yourself and that's something that people should be proud of, but it also adds to stress. Yeah. Um, and I know that um, if they're lucky enough to be an APC student, you know, there's an entire student support staff here mm. specifically um, to help with those sorts of issues. Um, if, you know, if you're not coping, can you defer? How can you cope better? Um, what would be, you know, it, you've got students from right across Australia mm. um, that will go to workshops with people that they don't know to talk about confronting things. Um, you know, just know that that is managed in a way that recognises the importance of the, of the student's health. Um, but certainly if they are working full-time, um, then choosing to study, um, they're young or they're going through a transition, which quite often happens when we choose to change our career path, um, you know, recognise that you're just just by those choices mm. that you're under stress, um, and and that stress mm. is good um, or can be good. It's getting you to somewhere that you need to go, but you need to manage that um, in between. And if you don't have in your personal life, people that can support you in that, then you certainly have them um, through your college and to take advantage of that because that's yeah. what they're here for. Yeah. And it's great that organisations are uh, starting to meet the challenge, see the challenge, starting to meet the, well, the opportunity, seeing the opportunity as well. Because, you know, I know for, say, students at the Australian Paramedical College, they are going to be with this college and uh, for about two years, up to two years, um, and have significant involvement in, in the college um, and with the staff and... Um, I know that they've put on a, a mental health plan now. They've got a, they've got uh, resources and things like that that students get access to. 
um, because it's a it's a very real very real challenge that as we've been talking about that a lot of us have to deal with it at some point in our lives we will likely mm. have to deal with these challenges and as you said a lot of people in this study kind of uh, season of their life they're coming out of school or they're changing careers and there's a lot of change happening mm. and these are the these are the the potential danger zones that we need to be really really um, yeah gracious with ourselves intentional about our mental health and I think um, uh, yeah it's I think we're moving in a positive direction even this conversation today uh, mm. is a really positive thing and I'm I'm so I'm just so glad that we're we're starting to talk about and make this a priority make our mental health a priority not not just talk about it in a bad light as well a negative light like what does mental health look like do I have one all this sort of stuff but hey, being on the front foot um, mm. making a plan. And um, certainly, you know, workplaces, there's a recognition now that that well-being in workplaces um, is vitally important. It's an enormously important component of workplace health and safety. Yeah. You know, we only used to talk for about manual handling or injuring yourself. Now we are, we're talking about um, stress and the mm. environment that we work in and the importance of kindness and respect um, amongst our colleagues, you know. Um, it's not just about, you know, the old scenario of, of bullying you know, of, you know, violent hazing or, you know, violent behaviour, mm. it's about the way that we're made to feel in our workplaces yeah. or our study um, places. Yeah, and I think that these sorts of conversations are only going to contribute in a really positive way to people going, well, actually, it's really important to talk about this because I want to have a long career and the only way to have that is to take care of myself mm. and to recognise when I need help with that. So I think we'll I'll, I'll, we'll make sure that though that resource fact sheet, all of which is online, yeah. um, and it's you know everything from anxiety to eating disorders to self harm, you know really specific mm. apps and support programs um, for where wherever people may identify that they may need more support. Yeah, great, Angela. Well, I think. Um, I think we've we've hit everything that we wanted to today, um, but I do have some questions, some final questions that uh, the Australian paramedical students have asked um, that I, Ooh, if I can okay. bring to you. But easy ones, there's not too many, Good. Um, and we may have covered a lot of these. But um, um, what are the best practices? We've already covered those things, right? Best practices to support um, good mental health. Um, we've talked about that a lot, which is great. But we, but in a nutshell. What are these good practices we talked about? Sleep yep. as well as you can, um, eating well, mm. drinking water, um, exercising, uh, getting out in nature, being grateful, being mindful. Um, what were some of our other ones? Relationships. Yeah, valuing our relationships yep. and patting ourselves on the back. You know, when we do have a win, no matter how small it is, mm. that, you know, this is a, that's an achievement. Mm. Excellent. Okay, how can we break the stigma associated with mental health? I think conversations, uh, you know, we, we already are and it's the, the sort of the ripple effect of the widening out of those conversations yeah. so that when we talk about uh, mental health, we talk about it in the same way as physical health. Everybody's got it. Some people are, are very healthy. Some people are not healthy. Most of us are in between. Mm. Um, so to really – because – Usually when we – in the past when we think about mental health, we think about people who are unwell. But when we talk about physical health, 
we immediately think of someone who's buff and strong and, um, you know, so it's a really interesting way that, that we framed those two things that are, that are really very, very similar. Um, yeah, so I think conversations is the answer to that, that when we talk about mental health, we make sure that we're talking about our own, the people that we love. We're not yeah. talking about disordered mental health. Yeah. We're talking about the fact that we've all got it. Mm. Great. Okay. So how? what's the best way to switch off after a big job um, that keeps maybe rolling over our minds even months later? And what are the, some of the things that you do to, to respond to you know, a, a big night where there's been some heavy stuff going on out there in the, in the chill-out zone? Mm, I think How can we process we've, that? I think we've probably all got quite individual ways um, to do that. I know we get so busy in the chill-out zone that, that you, I do tend to think the next day, or, you know, I'll randomly remember someone and go, oh, gosh, what, what happened there? How did that mm. um, turn out? We try and make sure, particularly if it's a critical incident, that, that we talk to each other before we leave um, because the and, – and most paramedics would find the same. You know, it's very hard for people not in that environment to understand some of the pressures in that environment. Uh, so think about – ways that that you would normally cope like I'm not going to go for a morning run but there'd be lots of people that would go for a morning run and that would help them um you know spend time with babies we I really encourage the staff in the chill out zone because we finish it around about the, the right time go look at the sunrise you know it's glorious it's a new day there's new possibilities um to recognize that people the people that we deal with are on their own journey and you know, as long as they've survived, that is an that is an addition to their journey that we can hopefully support them to learn positive things from. If if we're talking, you know, months and months later, then we are probably talking about trauma that needs to be addressed um, medically. Yeah. Uh, one of the most difficult things uh, it, for any first responder in any service is people who do not survive, um, and that is. I guess probably a, one of the most difficult things to deal with, the other probably being if you didn't do what you thought you should do, yeah. on ref, you know, when you think about it later. Um, and it's really important then to acknowledge, you know, that it's a pressurised environment, that you did the best that you could. Um, if that is a persistent feeling, then go and, and talk to someone, whether it's your supervisor if you're comfortable with them yeah. um, or a medical professional. But I think, again, that's going to be a really personalised thing. Um, it, if it's going over and over in your head, why? Do you think you did the wrong thing? Do you feel for that person? Because the reality is if, we, if we're choosing a profession where we're going to come up against over and over the same sorts of issues, we will burn ourselves out if we worry about each person's life trajectory after you know, after we've dealt with them. Yeah. One of the most challenging things in the chill-out zone is that we've actually, we try really hard not to find out what happens mm. um, because sometimes we probably don't want to know what's happened once they've left our care. There are lots of times that we do and it's probably a really happy story. Um, so how do you make peace with that? And, that you know, that that's part of being part of a team that, that agrees with the same philosophy um, and trying to wind those things up as much as you can before you leave each mm. other's company. And then to go and look at what is beautiful in your life um, that gives you hope where you can say, okay, now I can go back and do another um, shift. And, and I think maybe picking the person that 
you want to tell you when they think it's becoming an issue. Yeah. Um, you know, that you've got someone that you can trust, that when they, they come to you and they say, oh, man, you really, you're not letting this go, I think we need help. You know, yeah. that you've agreed beforehand that, yes, you trust that person enough to do that. Yeah. Okay. They know you well enough and you, mm. you trust them and, yeah, their opinion. That's great. Um, what's the best thing I can do for a friend who may be suffering mental health challenges? Don't judge them and ask them, you know, that because that's what reduces stigma, that we're not being secretive about mm. this. Um, so if they're undiagnosed, you obviously can't say, you know, what's your diagnosis, um, but where are your concerns? So you never come out with us anymore, um, but you don't want it to be you because if they are not feeling good about themselves, then it sounds like you're attacking them. Yeah. Um, so make it about I. You don't come out with us anymore and I really miss you. Um, you know, you, you're so much fun to go out with. Um, you know, oh, you, you play the piano so beautifully, I've noticed that you don't play anymore. Is there a reason for that? Mm. Um, so whatever the behaviour of concern is, um, think about why that's a concern to you. Um, don't start things that you can't finish. So, you know, if you're at a bus stop and you're about to catch buses going to two different places, that's not the time to say, you know, so what's going on with you? Mm. I've got to get on the bus now. Um, you know, try and set it up so that you do have um, time yeah. um, to because if the answer is what you're concerned about is correct, then you're going to need time to be with them to make sure that they get mm. assistance yeah. um, so that the pressure doesn't solely sit with you. Who else do you trust? You know, who the most important thing is that you're safe. Um, who else can we trust to bring in on this? To, because what you're telling me is you don't feel safe if they're suicidal. You don't feel safe. Who else can we tell? When it comes to suicidality, though, we, that's obviously the most serious and the most likely um, to be to have a tragic outcome. So try not to leave them. Um, until you have a plan or until you're able to get them to a health professional, which could be on the phone, um, you know, where they will actually go through a series of steps. When it does come to suicidality, never, ever be afraid to ask, are you, would you harm yourself? Mm. Is that something that you're yeah. thinking of? Um, that would be devastating for me. How can I help to keep you safe? Mm. Um, if it's, uh, you know, uh, you know, there there will be some mental health issues that make people really resistant to suggestions that there's something wrong with them, mm -hmm. um, because that's just the nature of their of their mental health problems. So yep. you know, some board, some personality disorders would be mortified if you if you brought up the fact that there's you know that they're acting yeah. a bit strangely. Yeah. Um, so I think think about what is it that you're seeing that's concerning you. Try and find out information about it. There may be a really simple explanation. They may yeah. have had an online lover that hasn't spoken to them in a month, um, you know, and it's actually just a natural grieving process because they've been ghosted. Um, but it's always nice to share those moments with our friends as well. Yeah. Um, or it, it could be the sign of something, um, you know, more deep-seated that does need help. Mm. And and I think to approach that non-judgmentally, wow, do you know that 
50% of Australians do have this issue, almost 50%, across their lifetime. Have you seen anyone about it? Do you know that there are great treatments for it? Mm. Um, do you know that this helps with that? Um, why don't we go for a walk together and we can talk about it on mm. our walk? Um, so I think, you know, if you're concerned about someone, particularly if it's someone that you have a personal relationship with, use the fact that you care about them. Um, come from that angle. I mm. care and that's why I'm asking. Yeah. Um, so if if they're doing things over and over again that really annoy you, like not turning up when they say they'll turn up or um, don't use those moments when you're cranky to start that yeah, conversation. Yeah, good, good point. Yep. Um, take a step back and take a breath and just go, no, no, this isn't right um, and be prepared for the answer, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. and to take the time to, to make sure that they're safe. Awesome. Amazing. Well, Angela, I think We've covered everything we wanted to today and we could, I mean, this. I'm so thrilled that we got the chance to talk about this. Uh, thank you so much for giving your time to come in today. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm very passionate way. about it. Yeah. And I'm also really happy, you know, if we if, if we get a good response and people are interested, send in your questions. We can do another one. Yeah. Um, you know, awesome. where we really specifically say, okay, this is what's shaping um, the students that are watching. Yeah. Um, this is what we want to know. And I think probably the... the the, you know, the last message that I would have for them is, you yeah. know, this is clearly an environment where your well-being and mental health is important. Yeah. Take advantage of that. Um, as, you know, over the next 20, 30 years, it will become important in every environment that we go in mm. uh, into. But it's wonderful that, that here is an institution that's willing to support you, yeah. that wants to hear, that wants you to succeed primarily, mm. but wants to hear. Um, if you have difficulties along the way that is actually set up specifically to be able to help you. So I think that's wonderful and take advantage of it. Absolutely. And, of course, uh, we've talked about some pretty heavy issues today. If uh, this has raised anything for you, any concerns or issues for you listening, uh, obviously we've talked about some of those ways in which you can get help going to your GP, but what are those immediate um, services, community services that people can reach out to right away if, if they oh, want so to talk to? Oh, so phone-wise, you know, we've got 24-hour hotlines, Lifeline, um, Beyond Blue. We can make sure that, that those numbers are accessible as well. Um, I'll pop up some of those, you know, longer-term resources that are apps and things. Um, but... Uh, if, if it's a, an immediate thing, try with those some of those phone hotlines. Yep. Um, if it's really serious, present to your nearest emergency department. Yep. Um, if it's not as serious, ring someone that you know really cares about you. Hmm. And um, it, one of the things that when it comes to people being triggered by conversations or situations – is because they're not taking care of that or they haven't taken care of that um, before. Um, So it is actually a really healthy indicator that there's something that needs our attention. Um, And when it comes to mental health, if it's waving at you madly saying, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. Good one. I think it's a great place to finish. Thanks, Angela. Thanks again. No worries. Thanks for listening to another episode of Changing Lives. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating, writing a short review, or even sharing it with a friend. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Did you know we're also on YouTube? Just search for Changing Lives Podcast and you can watch our episodes in full HD video. Yeah. A huge thanks to Australian Paramedical College for supporting this podcast. 
If you are interested in learning more about the exciting and diverse career opportunities in emergency healthcare in Australia and which one is right for you, head to apcollege.edu.au for more info and to get your free personalised healthcare career development plan. Special thanks also to our audio and visual engineer and editor, Jose Biotto. And as always, it's been a pleasure to bring you this episode. Until next time, don't stop changing lives. Oh,